Hello and welcome to the Meet the Masters podcast presented by Scale Up Milwaukee. Meet the Masters is an interview series that highlights entrepreneurs, business owners, and CEOs and their successful expansions and stories of growth. This series is presented by Scale Up Milwaukee, an initiative of the Greater Milwaukee Committee whose focus is on transforming the culture of growth in the region. Scale Up does this by hosting impactful events and business accelerators designed to infuse growth into every corner and help spread inclusive economic prosperity. You can find out more about Scale Up at scaleupmilwaukee.org. This episode features an interview with Peggy Troy, President and CEO of Children's Hospital of Wisconsin. This interview originally took place on February 9th, 2017. Good morning. Uh, I'm so excited to see you all again. Um, thank you for coming to our 10th, 8th Meet the Masters. Uh, today we're featuring Peggy Troy. Let's jump into it. So we have a little bit of a tradition. We don't do much for introductions because you came in the room knowing who we're going to talk to. Uh, but I am excited that we're going to talk to <laughs> Peggy Troy, uh, CEO of Children's Hospital of Wisconsin. Thank Good morning. You. It's an honor to be here today. Great. So Peggy got in late last night and didn't sleep a whole lot, so maybe we can catch her off guard. Yeah. Yeah? <laughs> Trick me. So let's jump right on in. You know, Children's Hospital is, uh, is an enormous enterprise, yes. and it's a complex one. Would you mind giving us sort of a, a high-level understanding of the locations and, and what Children's Hospital is focused on doing? So Children's Hospital is actually the only hospital in the state of Wisconsin that's 100% dedicated to kids. That's all we do, is children and families. And so, can I talk about our start to tell you a little bit Absolutely. about- Absolutely, okay. let's talk about the history. Because it's entrepreneurial. We got our start in 1894 by seven sisters who realized that children who needed medical care were not young, little adults. And so they needed something different. So they had a little home on Brady Street, four, four beds in the, the home, where they actually took care of children. And that grew in then to, we were then on the Marquette campus uh, until about 1987, and then moved out to the regional campus to become an academic center so that we have a relationship with the Medical College of Wisconsin where we teach, we train um, doctors of the future, nurses, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, another very important part of that is that we are an educational uh, a research facility where we do NIH-funded uh, investigation because our whole mission in life is to make kids' lives better. So we got our start from very entrepreneurial women who took a real risk and said, boy, these kids need something that's unique and different. The other part of our organization, this gets into the complexity, is in 1892, there was an organization called uh, Children's Service Society. And this got started by actually a minister who went around with a horse and a cart and picked up orphans off the street and gave them a place to live. And in the day, they were orphanages. That agency then grew into a foster care and adoption agency. And in the early 2000s, they were getting into some financial difficulty. And fortunately, our leaders, our board members, and our CEO realized that so many of the kids that they served were the kids we served. And so it was very important that we kept that organization alive and well. And so today we foster care case manage about 3,000 kids and we have over 200 adoptions every year. So our real goal in all that is to really reunify and strengthen families 
But in some cases, that just doesn't happen. And so we have to also find loving, caring individuals who are willing to take these children in and help them become productive citizens of, of our great community. So, uh, so that we're a complex organization. And then in about 2005, uh, we realized that, boy, you know, being in, being in the world of insurance, because we are um, paid by insurance companies, that the profitability went for reasons that would not necessarily benefit what we tried to do. We also, our doors are open to everyone, regardless of, of family's ability or inability to pay. Uh, so that means that about 50% of our revenue comes from Medicaid, which is uh, a program that's funded by the federal government but supported by the state of Wisconsin. So we opened up an insurance company and we now insure about 134,000 people in the state uh, that have Medicaid as their primary payer. You would think we'd only do kids in that market, and the state of Wisconsin would only insure, give us an insurance license if we also did adults. So in our 134,000 lives, we cover about 88,000 our kids, but we also are an insurance company for adults as well. So when you look at all the pieces and parts of our organization, you can see that we're, while we named ourselves Children's Hospital, because that's from a branding perspective, or Trisha back there uh, realized from her colleagues that we're known for that, but we're really a health system, so, because we're so much more than that. We employ about 5,000 people and have about 1,000 physician and providers who work within the organization in about 40-some locations across the state of Wisconsin. And so we have the primary site in, on the medical, regional medical campus, but we also have a site up in the Fox Cities. And our theme for that strategy is care closer to home because we realize that it is very disruptive for families to have to travel far distances for kids, for appointments, for things that they could be seen within their own community. So we actually have a pediatric unit, a neonatal intensive care unit, and then several of our physicians, our specialists, will go up there on a very routine basis. Some even live and work up there so that these kids can stay in school, the parents can work, and still get access to some of the best medical care you could have, you could have in this whole country. Uh, so that's a big footprint for us in the Fox Cities. We have about 17 primary care offices where we have pediatricians around, uh, primarily southeast Wisconsin, who provide uh, primary care pediatrics. And then we also have uh, several social service agencies where communities have invited us to come in and provide care for the most vulnerable. Uh, we are known nationally and actually pioneers in our child abuse uh, prevention and treatment program. Mm -hmm. And so many of our outposts are really uh, child abuse uh, prevention and treatment experts, but also social workers, nurses, et cetera, that go in and live and work in those communities that provide uh, care for those children. We see about 7,800 kids a year that have been, um, that have been abused. Um, that only scratches the surface, I hate to tell you, but that's the number that we're seeing on an annual basis um, for child abuse. So, so one of the reasons I wanted to have you give us the, the landscape of what children's does and touches is to make sense of how you, uh, the boomerang, right? Yeah, the boomerang. <laughs> uh, grew to, to run this organization, to grow this organization. So as you know, Peggy is, is from here, uh, and I can see a lot of Marquette people in the audience, <laughs> and she is a very, very proud Marquette alum. I am. Uh, but you studied nursing, 
and um, from what I understand, you know, it was a it was a frightening experience for you, uh, <laughs> and you you. What, what I love is that you interned at Children's. I did. Uh, so when I say boomerang, I'm not just talking geographic, I'm talking to an organization. Um, tell me about your path. So we know that you studied at, at Marquette, then you went to DePaul, and, and you end up in Texas. Yes. Right? Because, because Ron's got this really cool technology job, and, and he's going to invent the future. Uh, and actually, so he worked for Motorola, and their communications division was down in Fort Worth, Texas. And so he came home one day and said, guess what, honey? I think we're going to move to Fort Worth. And I'm like, where is that? <laughs> Are you kidding me? Uh, and he said, here's the deal. Someday, this is back in, in the early 80s, he said, someday you'll be able to walk around with a device in your pocket and talk to anybody in the world. And I said, you're crazy. You're nuts. That's never going to happen. But at the time, Motorola was working on the cell phone which today, obviously, I mean, who doesn't right. have one of those? So that's how we ended right. up in Fort Worth, where we stayed for 20 years. So when you get to, to, to <laughs> Texas, uh, you go and get a job, and you're working at Cook's. And, and what was that transition from uh, a practicing nurse to the first leadership position? Yeah. Well, so um, I was a neonatal intensive care nurse by background. And um, at the time, um, I had uh, finished my degree at DePaul in actually nursing administration, I, one of the unique things about me and my role is I do not have a formal business education, which when you run a billion dollar company, you'd think you needed that. However, um, I was able to launch into my first administrative role, so I ran the neonatal intensive care unit actually for a large adult hospital and the children's hospital and merged all the policies and procedures and everything you could merge except for the financials. And so we had a large regional program uh, with uh, um, about 100 beds and uh, served as the regional re referrals facility for all of West Texas. So we had a helicopter, an airplane, ambulances and things that brought kids from far and away, from dusty mm -hmm. tumbleweed towns in, in West Texas. Um, and that's where I really and got And there's a lot stuff. of those. There yeah. are a lot. Yeah. In fact, we, the state tree in Lubbock, Texas is a tumbleweed because yeah. there's nothing else that grows there. <laughs> so, so what I'm fascinated by is, you know, if anyone looks up Peggy, if you Google Peggy, there's, there's, uh, <laughs> did you see the face? I wanted, I wanted to note that. There's a consistent theme, and it's it's overwhelming, right? So, uh, the first thing I have next to your name on my notes is servant leadership. Yes. Right. Um, everything you find is about uh, your interest in being a servant leader, right? It's about uh, creating the best care opportunity. It's about using resources to to provide opportunity to, to children and to families. At what point in your time in, in Texas did you go from being a great administrator who's a servant leader to saying, I'm going to be uh, a growth catalyst? Because that is actually what you have yeah. a record of doing as well. Well, can I talk about servant leader first? You can. OK, so and, and I don't use that term lightly, but I was blessed to have a father who actually truly was, I think, the epitome of a servant leader. My grandfather was the first physician to move to our town. And you talk about an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. uh, when he was in medical school, he, for summers, to try to fund his, his education, he actually drove around with a horse and a, a wagon and sold trees. And that's how he funded himself, himself and went from Ohio 
uh, up to northern Illinois to mm -hmm. find this job with his friend and became, he was actually the first physician that ever moved to our town. My father took over from him. So we had this multi-generational um, uh, phenomenon where uh, my grandfather delivered babies and those babies then had babies that my father delivered and so he had this wonderful practice that was in a smaller town um, and it wasn't unusual for us to have people come over on Sundays who had a fish hook in their finger or something mm -hmm. like that. But he really did truly serve the community in some of the most incredible ways. Started the Rotary Club because he always felt that giving back to the community was the most important thing you could do. Mm -hmm. And he was very quiet about how he went about doing that. And, and so I learned from a young age about what it meant to be part of a community and also to give back because in addition to working at Children's as a nurse intern, my other summers I worked in his office so his mm. cranky nurse could go have a few weeks off and get some rest and maybe come back less cranky. So I got to see all these families that, again, multi-generationally had been coming and had a barter system where a lot of times we were paid with eggs and chickens and, and pies and things like that. So, so then um, being part of a community really teaches you that if you want a community to be great, you've got to invest in a community. If you want to invest in a community, you've got to invest in the people. And if you want to invest in the people, my bias is start with the kids. I mean, mm -hmm. our kids deserve to grow up healthy and give back. And you, as you know, uh, that kids are very vulnerable and in many situations aren't being given all they need to thrive. And so I learned from a very early in my administrative career that being part of a community and giving back, whether it was with women who were at risk for delivering preterm babies, or it was children who were at risk because of vulnerabilities beyond their control, child abuse, poor education, poor nutrition, that if you really wanted a community to be better, you had to, to dig in and do something and be proactive about it and rally and um, that's So your, your take on, on growth and, and being uh, an advocate for change in all the organizations you've worked for has actually uh, been inspired by your, your interest in changing communities. Yes. You know, so this is the first time we've, we've staged to Meet the Masters with uh, a nonprofit institution. And it's easy to presume that uh, because they, they count their outcomes in slightly different measures, that the operation has to be an entirely different thing. And the reality is we understand that all these organizations, whether they're for-profit or non-profit, exist to create value, right? right? So there's, there is a, an easy and, and obvious overlap, and I, I wanna focus on that. So you are, uh, you're in Texas, you are ascending the ranks, you're running two intensive care units. Um, how do you start to understand growth and your role in, in generating growth? Well, so from that experience, uh, when, you're, when you're working with particularly a, a children's program in a medical setting, there, you, have a, um, you have a fixed group of individuals. And so I'll, I'll use Texas, or Wisconsin as the example. There's 1.5 million kids in, in the state of Wisconsin, okay? That's a, that's a limited population. The birth rate hasn't changed. It, it hasn't changed in the last, in fact, it declined and now it's back mm -hmm. up. So if you wanna grow, you have to think about either different aspects of your business to, go, to engage in, or you have to create regional growth. And so in my Texas experience, the thing that we developed was the regional growth. So it wasn't unusual for our doctors to get in a helicopter and go out to 
have burgers and beer in cowboy boots in some of the smallest, tiniest little towns in Texas because on the bet that they might have a woman who would deliver a premature baby, or that there actually was, we realized the other part of this is that in, uh, the faster you get and intervene in that situation, the better the outcome for the child. And so if you were going to grow, you had to be very proactive and engage in relationship building, communication, access, and all those things that make people, and then be nice about it, and mm -hmm. that make people want to be uh, loyal to you because there's other choices out there. And I think those relationships and how you nurture those relationships create alignments that then are able to grow your business. And that's so, what we do in the state of Wisconsin. I'm excited to hear, you're, you're, ta you're, you're talking our language, right? You're growing your market share. Yeah. Um, and you know, in, an, in an area or in an industry where you have uh, you know, a, a, a contained market, yes. right? You're not gonna start offering services to kids in, in Illinois while you're in Texas. Or maybe you do. Well, it depends because you can do that. And if you have, so one of the programs that we have here um, is our Herma Heart Center. We have some of the world's best outcomes in cardiac surgery in kids. Um, so we do grow, and in fact, we grow all over the world. Now, obviously, the bulk of the kids that come through our doors for that service, if you will, mm -hmm. are going to be predominantly from Wisconsin, but if you have a unique offering and you have access and great customer experience and great outcomes, then you're going to create loyalty with people because if kids have to travel anyway, why go to Boston or Philadelphia? Why not come to us? So that's what you have, and you have to be very engaging in, in developing those relationships are multifactorial because it's as much about the relationship with the referring doctor, but then also your reputation, so that when parents know that they need something, today we're really, and I'm looking at my colleague Trisha over there, working on the digital market, because mm -hmm. our customer are millennials, right? Because they're the parents that are choosing what they want, they're making choices about where they want to care for their children, whether it's immunizations or it's heart surgery. And so for us to be, uh, competitive in a digital marketplace, um, we have to be out there in many different ways. So it's the relationship with the other hospitals, the physicians, the families, reputation, all those things really matter. And we're trying to push ourselves ahead of the curve and not get lost in the traditional way healthcare is delivered mm -hmm. because today um, I can tell you it's based on other factors than what I think um, our millennial <coughs> populations want to see because they don't want to wait for the doctor's schedule. Mm -hmm. um, they don't want to have delays and interruptions in responses to their concerns and their queries. So we want to be out there and be in it in a very proactive way in which they can count on us when they want us and not just when we're available, which is a very different thing for healthcare. It's very a, different. It's a wildly different thing. And, and by the way, uh, don't forget, this is a conversation. So when and yeah, if you have questions, please, please do chime in. Uh, so you're in Texas, you, you really get a hankering for uh, beef, um, <laughs> and then... Oh, you have to drive through Amarillo, Texas yeah. to... No, to really I'm, appreciate oh, that? Yeah, it's a real... It's a real <laughs> so then you do, the, the last thing a beef lover should do is you move to, you move to Memphis. Move to Memphis. Yeah, and so now you've got to get a, accustomed to a whole different kind of meat. Barbecue. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, 
Barbecue in Texas means something very different, that, right? Oh, please, that's very different. Yeah, yeah you, uh, it's a whole different deal. So one thing I actually, I want to go on record. Uh, you've lived in Texas, you've lived in, in Memphis. Uh, where's your favorite barbecue in, in Milwaukee or in the area? Oh boy, I can't tell you I've eaten much since I've been back here. <laughs> We're gonna work on that. Okay. We're gonna work on that. Where's your you've favorite probably, barbecue place? Yeah, you've probably had your fill. Your fill. Uh, my favorite barbecue, um, depends on what I'm feeling. Uh, sometimes it's Ashley, sometimes it's Smoke Shack. Uh, Iron Grate. Okay, I've My got favorite some barbecue is the one that I'm eating. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's the one that I'm eating. So you, you go to Memphis and, and this is now your, your first job. You've been pulled out of Texas. Mm -hmm. You've been recruited and you go to a, a different system uh, and you take an operational role. And what I'm interested in this, in this part of your work is when we talk about entrepreneurship, when we talk about growing businesses, we think about uh, operators who have a functional expertise, right? So, you know, you, you love baking, so you open a bakery, but you're the chief baker. And one of the challenges with scaling is getting out of your own bakery oh, to run a business, right? You're absolutely uh, right. So what I'm excited about for you is that you were a nurse and, mm -hmm. and you were a nurse administrator. Uh, but then you take a COO role, mm -hmm. and, and that gave you a different perspective. Now you're really operating a system. So how do you employ the mindset of that new growth mindset, that new, uh, we need to expand our offerings to, you know, given servant leadership, given our ability to impact children's lives. How do you use this new role as COO to do that? Well, And I, I want to make sure I say, uh, Peggy was COO at a, Methodist Labonner Healthcare. Right. That's it, right? Yeah. Okay, good. Well, so what happened is I went there. So the interesting thing for me there, I, the, the Labonner Children's Hospital, which was also started by women, they had a sewing club. And they sewed clothes for orphans and then founded this hospital. So it's just, they're nice stories. Mm -hmm. There's wonderful <laughs> stories. But anyway, so I went to actually run a large children's hospital within a seven hospital system. That's what I went to do. So from that perspective, uh, even stepping into that role, growth was still the same tenants. It didn't change. You had to have all your services arrayed around reputation, access, great care, great outcomes. What happened to me there, though, is I was asked then after a couple of years, the very person that recruited me there retired at the age of 49. And he was the person that ran seven hospitals. So there were six adult hospitals and one children's hospital. And um, the CEO at the time, mm. I want you to do something for me. And I said, whatever you ask, Gary, will you run the seven hospitals? And I was like, no, thank you. That's <laughs> no, not going to do that. Month later, please, will you do it? And I said, and I'm serious. I, I said, I, look, I love what I do. I love kids. I know so much about this aspect, and oh, by the way, we're building a new hospital, and I've got to focus on that. And the third time he asked, my husband said, either you take the job or we have to leave. So, so I then became the administrator of seven hospitals. That was probably the biggest challenge I've ever had in my career, because I, children's health care is very different than adult health care in some respects. It still has the same principles, but I'll just tell you, the whole demeanor, the whole gestalt, the whole energy that you get every day is just, it's a very different thing, and mm -hmm. don't forget that. The other interesting thing in our business, and it's unlike, I think, many of the businesses you run, is that your physician community um, sometimes is not 
employed by you. So your ability to influence and to um, create a dynamic relationship is somewhat different than what you typically do if you had your own employees that then you can set all the metrics and the compensation and all the things that you want to do. And so um, that's where I think the challenge is, is that one of the major engines of the business um, are their own independent practitioners. Mm -hmm. And so how you array that in a very complex environment, oh, and plus you've got a medical school, particularly in a, an adult system, was just very different. Mm -hmm. And um, so it was, that to me was the biggest challenge, is how you get an entire system, not just one hospital, to to do all the things it needs to do, but healthcare tends to be local with very different dynamics going in. Each, it, everything, every one of them had a different uh, set of circumstances and challenges that were very difficult. So when you try to, and in large organizations, you do try to create holistic um, approaches to problem solving, but in many cases, you have to appreciate the independence mm -hmm. and the, the uniqueness of each one of those within that system. So, are you suggesting that uh, that that experience was less or, or more complicated than than running Children's Hospital now? Much more. Much more. Really? Yes. Despite the size difference. Yes. I'm yeah. Because we had like ten thousand employees, you know, seven locations, um, a very different dynamic, and I, running this even though this is a, is a very complex system because it's not just a hospital as I described and we've got um, you know many different and, and healthcare is very highly regulated um, we could go into a couple hours about why healthcare is in the situation it is today but we won't um, <laughs> unless you guys want to ask that but um, you know it's so highly regulated so the the dynamics uh, so when you're in it in um, even though we have multiple different business units I think our vision, and our vision is a really important galvanizing factor in what we do. We want our vision that we adopted in 2010 by our Board of Trustees is that we want the children of Wisconsin to be the healthiest in the nation. Now, why did we do that? Because most healthcare institutions say we want to deliver the very best health care. Well, when we looked at the health status of the kids in the state of Wisconsin, and we benchmarked it with Healthy People 2010, what we realized is in terms of about 50 indicators for children's health, we stack up to be about the middle of the pack, okay? When you come to the central city of Milwaukee, it's the fourth worst in the nation. Now, I'd just come from Memphis, Tennessee, you know, where I thought I'd seen some of the worst health disparities I could ever imagine on the Mississippi border. I mean, there are places in Mississippi that still don't have potable water. And when I, so I, in my journeys back, because I'm one of six kids and we've got a lot of family events, coming back to Milwaukee, you see the Calatrava and all these, mm -hmm. you know, the medical campus, all these wonderful things. So the shock I found coming back here was that we really are living in a community that has health disparities that are worse than some third world countries. Well, that's unacceptable, particularly if you are the phenomenon in the state of Wisconsin that sh should 100% be standing up for children's best interest. And so when, when you start to step back and think about kids' best interest, you know, what do we want for kids? We want our kids to grow up healthy and thrive. I mean, heck, we'll all be on Social Security and somebody's got to work to help pay for all that stuff, right, if nothing else. So we, you know, so we really, and it, it was a bold and brave um, vision for our Board of Trustees to adopt because 
you know, we'll deliver the best health care, but when you start to get into the tenets of overall health, there are, if you look at, so the other interesting fact, and then I'm going to get back to your question. The interesting fact is, is that when you look at what influences health outcomes in people, mm. only about 15 to 20% is healthcare delivery. And the rest of it is the places you live, the choices you make, and 40% of your, your health outcome is determined by your genetics. So if you start to look at the places they live and the choices they make, then you start to drill into what is going to really, what's it really going to take for us to influence kids' outcome? And the question the board keeps asking, we have wonderful people on our board of trustees, how are we going to measure this thing? Because if you look, how do you know by age 21 a child's on a pathway towards a, a phenomenal health outcome? Well, that's really hard, and you've got to be very um, willing to use smaller micrometrics as your benchmark to feel like you're moving the needle. So one of the things we determined was, okay, so while it's not a health outcome per se, we understand that um, children who receive immunizations are going to be healthier by and large than children who aren't. And if you looked at the central city of Milwaukee at the time, about the immunization rate was about 57%. So this is when you arrive in 2009? Yes. yes. Okay. So 57% um, is unacceptable. I mean, that's just not right in a thriving community like Milwaukee that's really or so, I'm going to say Southeast Wisconsin. And so um, we, we went on this journey and we couldn't do it alone. You have to engage the health department and neighborhoods and all these things that it takes to make sure that these kids are going to get what they need. Because the studies will show you if a child's immunized, they do have a better health outcome. That means that they're in well baby care and they're getting some of their basic needs met as opposed to kids and I'm not going to get into the whole religious thing or people who make the choice not to immunize their kids. I'm talking about access and kids' availability of health care. So um, we now have an immunization rate of over 70% So we've, we, in, in Milwaukee. So we've moved the needle, but it took a lot more than just taking care of sick kids when they need mm -hmm. us. So that's where this, this vision has galvanized us in such a way that there, I bet you there isn't hardly a person at Children's Hospital out of the 5,000 people that do not know that mm -hmm. our goal, our number one stated North Star is that we want the kids of Wisconsin to be the healthiest in the nation. And we've done, uh, I think, a pretty good job of letting people know what part they play in that role. So if you're sitting in a billing office or you're sitting in a, uh, the cafeteria worker or if you're cleaning the floors or you're the nurse at the bedside, there's purpose to what you're doing. And I think that is how you move an organization forward, is that there's that sense of purpose. People really know what they're there to do, and you then create an environment that allows them to be at their best. In fact, we have an entire program called At Your Best. So whatever part they play in, in an organization that's trying to make kids' lives better, they can articulate what that means and feel a part of the whole thing. And that's what we've been able to to try to erase. So I don't think I answered your question. I, I, think, you, I think you did. I think you did. And we're going to have more questions. Please, from the top. Hey, just a quick question. So you know, when you were talking about your experience in Memphis with seven hospitals, big system, and then kind of juxtaposing that with one system here, is there, and what you've been able to do to move the needle, is there a lesson there in terms of bigger isn't always better? Is there a lesson there about the ability to kind of be an independent system to 
control your own destiny, make your own decisions. Is there parallels there? So I, I just want to repeat because we're yeah. recording it, and I'm going to unfairly summarize what you just said. Um, it, you know, is there is there a, a learning takeaway, given the difference between the systems you've worked in before, as relates to operations, as uh, access to resources, <laughs> vision and mission, yeah. and so on? There. Okay. So, um, a couple of things. One, uh, I think this, for me, the singular purpose of making kids' lives better has has really uh, allowed us to become what we've become today because people really understand that whatever they're doing it is is making a kid's life better and so that and it, it's not to disparage anything that goes on in these large mega systems but running seven hospitals with I think 12,000 employees in a lot of locations um, trying to, to keep that momentum going forward is really a very difficult challenge. Um, and, and also, uh, while every healthcare institution is gonna say they want to make you know, people well, um, the, what it takes to create the inertia internally to get that done is not as easy and straightforward as one would think. So I'll just say that. You know, and why are we staying in an independent children's hospital? Well, because if, if you've looked around the country, um, all these mega systems are now coming together. So you've got, you know, big health systems in multiple locations in many different states. And the theory is that they'll be more efficient and more effective and on and on and on. Uh, and it's a challenge for us, I'm going to tell you, to stay independent as a billion-dollar company when you know, they're saying unless you're four billion, you're not going to make it in healthcare. Well, our singular focus on what we're trying to accomplish in making kids' lives better, all our resources, all of the things we invest in, all of our, I'm not going to say profitability, because we, we, while we are not-for-profit, mm -hmm. we do have to make a profit, because we can't keep the engine running just even to fund our capital every year, um, to be on the cutting edge of the things that we're doing. But all that profit, if you will, goes plows right back into community you know we're in neighborhoods we're in we have like 15 school nurses we have community clinics and all that kind of stuff because we're trying to make an investment remember our, our vision is we want kids to be healthy well if all you do is wait till they're sick and in the hospital then you're just the fixer-upper shop right what you really have to do is push out so if you go to Metcalf Park you're gonna see uh, school nurses and a, com a community clinic that has mental health services and dental care, has community navigators and things like that. Because again, we're trying, we're, we're trying to take ourselves out of business. Now that's not going to happen, obviously, because kids are still going to be sick and need us. But our goal is to really put, our, if we could put ourselves out of business because kids didn't have cancer or heart defects or cystic fibrosis, what better would that be? And we're going to fix all that, like I said. We got to keep pushing out. So I think the singular focus, the ability to array people, to galvanize your work. I mean, our product, we're a service organization. And when you're a service organization, the only thing you have is your people. And your people have to be willing to get up every single day or every single night, depending on when they're working, and be ready 100% of the time. Because nobody wants their kid to be sick, right? Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, ah, oh, I'm going to go to Children's Hospital because I want to go there today and have a great experience. They're scared, it's awkward, it's a mysterious system, even though we try to make it friendly. So we've got to do our best to really make sure that we're always 
on cue to make sure that family has the type of loving and caring experience that they deserve. Mm -hmm. there's, there's something uh, I, wanna, I wanna make sure we dive deeply into. Uh, but first, we're gonna, we're gonna hear from Joe. Joe. Hi, Joe. First of all, thank you for all that you do for the community. Um, I'm interested in your perspective. You come in to replace a well-liked, well-respected CEO, mm -hmm. long-tenured. You're an insider, but you're an outsider. I'm an outsider. Outside of the system. Tell us about that transition and how do you garner the confidence and respect and trust of all the people when you're the new kid on the block and then take a good system, arguably a very, very good system, and make it even better. You know, it, it, it was a big challenge, but, and I'll tell you the first thing is I have a lot of admiration and respect for what John did for this community for many, many years. And I made that clear, that I wasn't here to, you know, I'm waltzing in and all of a sudden everything's going to be great. In fact, I was fairly deferential to his successes because what he did, when I came, we had 14 companies. John loved building companies. Um, I think that was a real measure of success. So we had... Uh, I went to 87 board and board committee meetings my very first year, which I, I don't know what else I did. I'm trying to, <laughs> I think it was just a fog. But, um, but uh, when in, in a tax exempt or not-for-profit organization, your board of trustees are members of the community that represent you, and we don't own our place. We are a community treasure and asset, and so we count on those individuals. Um, they're not stockholders, but they have a huge investment. So I had a lot of respect for John. And, his, and you talk about an entrepreneur. This guy took over the hospital when he was 33 years old. It was a train wreck. It was in a dumpy old building. It was falling apart. The care was fairly mediocre. And, and I'm not disparaging. It kind of is the evolution of a children's hospital in many cases. And, you know, he was brazen and brash, and he said, no kidding, I'm going to get this thing done. And he did. I mean, it became a research education. He, he brought the health plan. He, you know, brought on the community services program. The thing I did was I, with the help of many people, brought those, all those pieces and parts to bear and, and made it an integrated, and an integrated system. Okay, immunizations. That was our first real attempt to integrate. And you may say, well, that's easy. You know, you give them here. It took us three years to get every location that we had across the entire state of Wisconsin to know that that was an important aspect of their job. We didn't give immunizations inside the walls of the hospital. That was the health department's job. Well, you know, when I was in Texas, I was, I was in this, um, I was in this initiative that. Uh, to drive immunizations across the state of, of Texas. It was called Shots a Across Texas. And in, <laughs> yeah, wouldn't be saying that today. Um, and in fact... Uh, Did you name that? Uh, no. <laughs> that was not me. But it was Shots Across Texas. And actually, um, the Spanish translation, the Hispanic t translation actually was Bullets Across Texas. So uh -huh. we really had a problem. Anyway, but, you know, so... Um, you wrap yourself around the kids. So we had a health plan that sat over here. We had 
primary care offices that really didn't talk to the specialty offices very well. We had all these pieces and parts. And so when I stepped back and said, boy, what a treasure. We have all this stuff. And what would what it would mean if we just integrated this and wrapped ourselves around the, ki the kids so that wherever a child entered our system, they were in a system mm -hmm. as opposed to they went here, they went there. Because parents would come out and go, well, one of the, one of the testimonies, and I'm not, this is, you know, this is a little oh, sobering. We actually invite boasting. Okay. Well, <laughs> no, no, no. This is not a boast. This is. Um, we had. I had a mom come to me, say, you know, I go to the the cardiologist because my daughter's got a heart problem, and they tell me to restrict fluids, and then I go to the nephrologist because she mm -hmm. also has a kidney problem, and he tells me to push fluids. What am I supposed to do? Mm -hmm. What she did is she went back to nursing school. Now is a nurse at the hospital. So, <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, we weren't coordinating. So. One question you asked me before is, what was the biggest challenge that I took on mm -hmm. when I, we were probably the last large children's hospital on the planet that didn't have an electronic health record. And this is 2009, and they had been coming into vogue really in the late 1990s. So one of the big challenges that we had to face is that we had to do something and we had to do it quickly. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we, and I, I had had some experiences with this in the past, and I knew that there was one system out there that could help us access wherever we touched a child in 40 locations across the state. And unfortunately, it is our very own state's epic. Um, so $137 million later, we installed that system. Um, and instead of, I've watched my colleagues across the country put in this little application, that little application, and then, oh, by the way, do your primary. We said, no, we're going big bang. And so one day, November 3rd in 2011, we went from no system or disparate systems to an entire electronic record. And the, one of the reasons that, that, that we did that is so that we could assure that wherever we touched a child's life, whether it be a social worker, a school nurse, a community navigator, or in the ICU at the hospital, that there would be the most contemporary interaction that had happened with anybody within our system. And that's what we were able mm -hmm. to do, again, to be that. So we took all that stuff from what John was able to do and then started to weave it into the fabric of how we were looking at kids. So it was building on as opposed to taking apart and starting myself in a new venue. Um, and I just, I thought that was the better part of Valor as opposed to coming in. Because sometimes you come into a new company, you sort of to rip down things and the, I think th what you do is you appreciate the legacy of the organization you went into. You fix the things that need to be fixed and, and grow the things that are the assets and the treasures that were already in place. So, and so one of the things that we see when we look into your, your time at Children's is there's one word that is used just constantly, and that's culture. Yeah. And so I would imagine that part of that transition was, yeah. was well, first you built a vision Right, which was distinct from your predecessor, and then you used culture as a way to achieve that vision. Tell me about how you approach building culture. Well, so um, we, as as I mentioned, we had a culture of a great deal of independence, mm -hmm. and everybody. In fact, if you went to our fifteen primary care offices, um, they didn't, in many cases, even brand themselves as children's hospital. Um, in fact, it was, you know pediatrics at or whatever. 
And so, again, if you were going to integrate and really become an, an, a high-performing system of care, you needed people to really sign up for what we were trying to build there. Um, I also knew that we did not have the right culture to go into a massive change like an electronic health record. Because remember, we've got a thousand doctors, we've got probably a thousand nurses, and then everybody else that has to have access to that thing. And to try to do that with the Big Bang, if you didn't have people rowing in the same direction, understanding the gestalt of what was what what the end game was, or the at least the the next level of game was in all this, you were going to fail because a lot of these things fail. I mean, a lot of these large system installations, and remember, we can't shut down our business one day install this sucker and then the next day you're open for business. You've got traumas coming in, you've got OR schedules. And so um, we, we stepped back and actually my, my, my best boss ever that I worked for in Memphis called me one day and said, he was an engineer and he wasn't into touchy-feely at all. Nice mm. guy, but just not that. And he called me one day and said, Troy, I gotta tell you, I'm onto something. It's the best thing I've ever done in my career and you need to get on it. And actually, there, there is a company out there called Sendelaney that um, has, has a real unique way about going, uh, in going about culture and in, in embracing culture in an organization. And the interesting thing about it, it's very zen-y. Um, it's not about rah-rah, come in and be part of the company. It's actually about you as an individual and how you show up. And, and so what people learn from that experience, and uh, most of our employees now have been through it, even our physicians, that was a real chore to start that, but they now embrace it. Um, you develop, basically, uh, it, it's about you, as, you're investing in them as people, as opposed to you're investing in them as your employee to work for your company. And it starts with how you, and one of the things that it starts with is this whole concept of um, be here now. And it's a very important concept. And in today's digital world, it's almost unheard of. But be here now means wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you're here. You're not on your phone. You're not, and, and, and it's just to be in the present moment. It's a lot about what meditation's all about, is be here now. So we actually, if you sat in a meeting at Children's, you would rarely find somebody texting or looking at their digital devices because out of respect for yourself, because I've learned that multitasking is, is is a false concept. There's no such thing. You can't do anything well if you're trying to multitask. And if you're going to be in a situation, be here now, pay attention, and get it over with, and go on to your next thing. The other thing is they've got this thing called a mood elevator. Now you think it's silly. It's actually on these little cards. But what it talks about is, you know, where are you at in your own sort of mood today? And it goes all the way at the top floor is appreciation. And there's actually a lot of studies that show when you're in appreciation mode, actually your biochemistry of your body is, is healthier, right? And it goes down to depression. But where it is in the middle is curious. So you start always start at curious. So no matter what situation you're in, um, and you start to feel like, oh, I'm getting, I'm getting a little annoyed, I'm getting a little, you go back up to curious and just invite the thoughts and the questions before you judge. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, that has done more. And then there's other great zeny concepts in there. But, but it also teaches you as an individual to take care of yourself. Because you can't do the work we do and, and, and not take care of yourself. It's too hard. You can't be at the bedside in an ICU with a kid that is, you know, deserves to live and is having some complication 
and, and not think that that is a very stressful. But so if you're not healthy in your own mind, in your own um, way of, of viewing the world, you can't do what you do. So, so I've had several, several emails and letters and thank you notes from people saying, I went to this thing, I didn't want to go, I thought it was going to be terrible, it's about a day and a half. You're with about 30 or 40 people. In fact, Tricia, here's an, a, a facilitator of it. Um, and you come out realizing that this is really about you. And when you care about people, when you care about who they are, not just about what they do for you, I'm telling you, the trans transcending of how they, they work for you is, is an incredibly f interesting phenomenon. And it's really worked for us. So I'll tell you, the, the worst day that I've had mm. in a long time ever, we just installed this thing on a, a midnight on a sun Saturday night. It, everything went swimmingly. And remember now, everything we're doing is on the electronic record. On Tuesday, the whole system started coming down. And my CFO came, or my CIO came to me and said, something's amiss because the system was crashing. Now we've got 30 kids in an OR. I've got an anesthesiologist who never wanted to do this in the first place, is about ready to have a cow because he, he agreed to put all his anesthesia machines and all the equipment, everything mm -hmm. that would, would dictate how kids are being cared is suddenly starting to decompensate. If we had not gone through that training, and I sat there and looked at him and I said, George, are you at Curious? Because I didn't want this to happen, you didn't want this to happen, and Mike certainly doesn't want this to happen. Well, I'll tell you what happened. There were two servers that had the exact ID number. Now the chances of that happening, you, you have a chance of getting hit by a meteorite, which is about <laughs> 160, 630 million chances to have two ser seven servers, two had the identical wow. fingerprint. And they kept talking to each other. And they, we, had, we, had IBM, we had everybody across the world trying to help us figure this out. And one of the IT guys in our own shop realized what happened. So anyway, From but a this position of curiosity. Yeah. So this culture thing has really, I think, set us on a different course. We call it at, at our best. And it's just <laughs> asking people to do what they do, but we care about you so. So so we want to prepare oh, to sorry. wrap. No, that was that was great. Thank you. Jim. I'm gonna ask a business question. Yes. <laughs> so you have now in this community a twenty two billion dollar company that uh, called Ascension that wants some of your market share? Yes. You have a $4.5 million company called Aurora that wants some of your market share? Yes. You have people in Madison, UW, that want some of your market share? Yes. Um, which is called revenue to them? Yes. And profit? Yes. So what's the strategy there? And then on the other side, your insurance company is taking market share that United Healthcare, Fortune 6 company, thinks they should have, Anthem, a Fortune 30 company, thinks they should have. How do you deal with these current new situa newer situations when people are after you with objects that are not kind to the human body? So, so again, just to repeat, in the face of extraordinary competition yes. uh, from uh, service providers that do what you do or think they do what you do, right. in the face of competition from partners with whom you have to work, yes. What's the strategy to, <coughs> to navigate and to grow? So, I yeah. What keeps me up at night? Is that the question you just yeah. asked? <laughs> I think you just did it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, first and foremost, 
you've got to do what you do and do it really well. I mean, you know, people have choice and they can decide. And if we don't do what we do really well, and it's all the things that I mentioned before, being responsive and available and nice and competent and, you know, all the things that make a business thrive, um, keep your, so to me, first of all, you, you have to do what you do and do it really well and keep driving that every single interaction, every single place that anything happens, you've got to make sure that that's, that's, you stick to your knitting, as I like to say. The second thing is, is that, you know, you're right. Um, everybody now wants to own the family because if you own, if, you know, if, and no deference to you guys in the room, but men, women do, are the primary care health care selectors. And so the whole theory is, is that if you can get women to come and deliver their babies and then they're going to pick, you know, who, where grandpa has his heart attack, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So in this community, back when John was here, all the CEOs in town got together and said, look, you know, we're going to allow one great children's hospital to emerge. Because remember, most kids are healthy. 95% of kids are healthy. They don't need a children's hospital. With only 1.5 million kids in the state of Wisconsin, you've got to cast a wide net. Well, so in the new healthcare landscape, those dynamics have changed. And everybody does now want to own the family. And the fear is, is if they come to children's on the medical campus for care that suddenly, uh, did you notice that we sit right next door to Freighter in the medical college? So, um, so there, you, <clears throat> the airwaves have gotten very, very um, noisy with marketing. And we've, where we went, we spent very little in marketing prior to this evolution. Um, I can tell you our budgets increased substantially because we want people to know that, that we're here. We're known for the place that's the sick place and we do so much more than just the sick fixer up stuff. And if we get the kids in the primary care office, then if they have a problem, they're gonna to come to us. So um, the next thing we've gotta price ourselves in a way in which we're competitive. Because remember I said all of our customers now, for the most part are millennials. And they, they wanna know what things cost. I mean, can you imagine going to buy a product and nobody can tell you what it costs? I mean, what business on the planet gets away with all that? So our di discipline and diligence around knowing our cost pricing ourselves reasonably um, and being of value and not just in the words only but being of value uh, is very important to us. Um, so uh, the community is going to decide in the end. People are going to decide whether we stay as an independent thriving children's hospital that is and I'm, built on many things that arrived before me we are one of the most highly recognized children's hospital in the country. Our specialists are some of the best you'll see. Um, and what I love to tell the business community is, look, no child ever needs to leave our state for the very best care. And that's unheard of in a state this small. If you're in Boston or Philadelphia or Texas, that's great. So I've been really appealing to the community. What do the employers want? Because the employers are making decisions about what health care insurance they're going to buy. And what's emerging now is this thing called a neural network. And so Ascension will go to an uh, insurance company, and they'll negotiate, and they'll get a better price. And then they'll go out to the employers. And now, instead of us being in every plan, they can start to exclude us and only allow certain things to come to us. Well, if all we do is certain things, I like to say this, if all we do is 
you might have seen on the front page of the paper a few weeks ago where we actually, there was a child that was born right outside of Madison, uh, or no, actually the Marshfield Clinic for this one, who didn't, who was not born with, with the trachea, your breathing tube. Well, our surgeons were called right after that child was born up at the Marshfield Clinic and there was a comp, they knew this child was not getting good airway exchange. Our, our surgeons actually, in, you know, devised a tube that they now emplaced in the child's throat that allows him to breathe. Wow. It's, it's huge. I mean, it's, it's the first time in the United States a child's ever lived with this condition. It's rare, but it's the first time in, in the world that it's been successfully done. Well, you don't, you don't replace a kid's airway unless you do tubes and tonsils and all these other things that give you the infrastructure you need so that when a kid needs a heart transplant, you've got everybody lined up in order to be at their best to do that. We had a situation about a year and a half ago where unfortunately, tragically, a, a child died. And because the parents were so generous and grateful, within about 24 hours, we did five transplants. It took 180 people to do that. Well, you can't do that kind of work if you're not doing it a lot. You don't want to go to the person that does one, one thing a year. You want the person that so insurance companies, other health systems, and employers are going to decide ultimately. We have to be doing the best work we can, but they're ultimately going to decide the fate of what happens mm -hmm. to us because it's a very competitive, noisy marketplace. And I'm not saying that they're doing anything wrong, but I will say that I think that the best interest is us. The other thing we try to do is partner. So we want to plug and play. We want to be that Intel chip. We don't do everything our, you know, for all care for the whole family. Obviously, we focus on kids. And so being an, a plug and play, the Intel chip, is another way that we can partner effectively and be with them to provide that care um, in partnership as opposed to in competition. So we've got some competition and others were partner, like ThetaCare up in the Fox Cities. Mm -hmm. We're very good partners with them. And we've plugged and played and we're in that community. Everything from mental health to complex neonatal intensive care. So, so we've come to the end of our conversation and, and I'm going to, I'm going to ask you uh, to finish with uh, the one thing you get to tell this audience. Uh, of folks who are investing and working to uh, to create a better a better region through growing and supporting growth. But while you think about that, let's let's uh, prepare ourselves to thank Peggy oh. for her insights. Um, you know what we've learned today, uh, because what we've been doing is we've all been being here now together. Uh, we've learned about uh, using integration. Um, and really synergies as a way to, to achieve growth and expansion of vital services and offerings. Um, we've talked, um, only naming it a few times, about servant leadership, about identifying a vision, and about using culture to achieve that vision, about getting everyone rowing in the same direction. I really love that. Um, and finally, I, I think it's worth repeating the, the acknowledgement that in the face of competition, one of the things that we can do is do what we do really well yeah. uh, and in a differentiated way. Um, so thank you. And I, I'm just going to ask again, what's the thing that, that you get to share? Well, so I think that, um, first of all, it's important to be who you are at the end of the day. Know yourself and know who you are. Um, 
really get passionate about what you do. You know, that, that to me is, why do you get up every day and do what you do? Because um, the energy, the enthusiasm, the passion, and the commitment is, is a galvanizing effect on people. Because when you can get up every day and, and, and really believe in yourself, but also really believe in what you're doing and how you need others to do it with you. Because no man is an island. We've got to do it all together. Um, and, and be very principled about how you go about doing things. And, you know, sometimes being principled is difficult, but I think at the end of the day, you'll always win. You'll always win when you're principled and you stick to your value systems. Um, and, and, but the thing I really want you to know mm. is the, the treasure and asset that we have in this community is, is really valuable. And so as you think about children's and maybe the bit you've gleaned today about us, just remember that we're a treasure to this community. We're a true asset. We really do believe in making kids' lives better. We don't do it alone. We have so many wonderful partners that do it with us. Um, but if we really want to improve the overall health of this community, we've got to get to the kids. And we've got to get to the kids in ways that are not working today. Uh, because when you look at suicide rates and mental health issues and all the things that kids are facing, we're in a really difficult uh, time. And I think that um, doing whatever we can to make this community great to live, work, and grow up in is going to, the business community will be the end result of that, will thrive. And so just remember our kids. And thank you so much. This was such an honor. And you're such oh, a great interviewer. Yeah.